Well, I have to tell you right up front, I personally don't like roller coasters. King's Dominion and I were never made for each other. Up and down, up and down, up and down. Uh, now, there are some of you here, I'm sure, who absolutely love the experience. Up and down, up and down, up and down. This was what some of the disciples were going through when we observed their experience in Mark chapter 9 this morning. Jesus has been telling them about what lay ahead. And Mark records this in chapter 8, verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Uh, down to the bottom. And then a few days later, Peter, James, and John are way up to the top. They're going to be at the highest point of their experience with Jesus. And so we're going to look at the setup of this situation. At the end of chapter 8, Jesus talks about his coming in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. It's a reference to the end times. Now let's go to Mark's Gospel then, chapter 9 where the story continues from there. Chapter 9, verse 1. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, some people think that Jesus is indicating that he thought that he would return while some of the disciples were still alive. But what we really see that he's referring to uh, instead is an experience that some of his disciples are going to have just a few days later. Look in Mark 9, starting at verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now the timing of this event is tied to the context of Jesus' teaching about his pending passion, about his coming sufferings and death. And Mark says that Jesus was transfigured before them. This is one of only four places in all the New Testament that this word occurs. It occurs here in Mark chapter 9. It'll be in the parallel passage in Matthew 17. And the Apostle Paul uses it twice, Romans 12, 2, and 2 Corinthians 3, 18. In both of those instances, the translators have put the word in as transformed. The word in the Greek New Testament is metamorphumai. Uh, it's where we get our English word guess, metamorphosis. And uh, Kenneth Wiest, in his word studies in the Greek New Testament, says this, the simple verb refers to the, fact, to the act of giving outward expression, coming from and being truly representative of that inner character. So he translates this statement of Jesus being transfigured before them in like this, the manner of his outward expression was changed before them that outward expression coming from and being truly representative of his inner nature. 
In other words, what was on the inside, all of a sudden now, is exposed. It's unveiled. It's revealed outside. It's, it's released. Well, what was there? What was on the inside that was suddenly revealed on the outside? The writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews tells us what that was. And he opens with these statements. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, this is it. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus was the exact representation of God the Father. God is a God of glory. This is the most essential element that we could use to describe who God is, what God is like. This is what David declared about God in Psalm 24 when he writes, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let's try to understand a little bit, if we can, what this is. What, what, what does glory mean? What is it? I mean, it's pretty important if this is what is what's best describes who God is and who Jesus Christ is. And when you think of glory, probably some of the words that might come to mind are, are beauty, majesty, splendor. The Hebrew word for glory is kavoth, and it means weight or weightiness. Uh, it conveys the idea of, of external physical manifestation of dignity, of preeminence, of majesty. Here's the best description I've ever found for the concept of glory. God's glory is how he described the sum effect of all his attributes. Grace, truth, goodness, mercy, justice, knowledge, power, eternality, all that he is. Therefore, the glory of God is intrinsic. That is, it is as essential to God as light is to the sun, as blue is to the sky, as wet is to water. You don't make the sun light, it is light. You don't make the sky blue, it is blue. You don't make water wet, it is wet. In all of these cases, the attribute is intrinsic to the object. The expression of God's attributes, all that makes him God, is glory. And this glory is often seen as unapproachable light. The psalmist, in fact, puts it this way. In Psalm 104, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. John the Apostle, writing in his first epistle in the New Testament, says this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you that God is light. 
and in him is no darkness at all. So God's glory is seen as brilliant, radiant, inexpressible light. In the Old Testament, the glory of God is intimately connected to self-revelation, God revealing who he is. And I want you to hang with me for just a moment because we're going to take a quick tour and run through several millennia of biblical history to see this. In Exodus chapter 3, we read of Moses, who is tending sheep near Horeb, or Mount Sinai. And he comes upon a bush that's burning with fire. Remember Charlton Heston, the bush? Okay. Um, and yet the bush is not consumed. And then God speaks and calls to Moses through the bush. And God identifies himself to Moses as the God of your father, the God of Abraham and Isaac, the God of Jacob. This is God revealing himself to Moses. When God delivered the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he guides them along the way. And he leads them with his presence, a presence that's symbolized by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It's his manifestation that he was with them, guiding them, leading them, protecting them. This is his presence with them. In the wilderness, God gave instructions to Moses on how they were to build a, a tabernacle. This would be the dwelling place of his Shekinah glory. His glory would dwell with his people in this place. And so God tells Moses in Exodus 29, there I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my what? Glory. Then we get to the end of the book of Exodus, chapter 40. And the tabernacle has been set up and all the furnishings that are in there. And then we read, something amazing happening. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. We jump ahead in history to Solomon who God enables him then to build a temple, a more of a permanent structure. And the very same thing happens when they're ready to dedicate the temple. The Shekinah glory of God falls into the Holy of Holies. The light radiates from without such that the priests could not even stand inside the temple. Then we fast forward to 350 years later. And we come across the prophet Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is looking and he describes seeing the glory of God rise out of the temple due to Israel's apostasy. That is, they're falling away from allegiance to God. And the glory he sees finally departs from the temple. And the presence of God in his Shekinah glory is no longer in the midst of the people because of their sin. For 600 years, the Shekinah glory of God was absent. And then we arrive at this momentous time in Jesus' life. And he takes his inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John, with him as they go up to the mountain, most likely Mount Hermon. Now I have a map here. So way to the north is Mount Hermon. Uh, just to the south of that, you see the city of Caesarea Philippi. If you recall in the gospel accounts, this is where Jesus asked his disciples who people were saying that he was. And uh, it's where Peter made that great statement, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
Now here's a picture that Brian Conaway has, has, has provided me from Mount Hermon. Here's the tallest mountain in Israel, over 9,000 feet. A beautiful mountain, isn't it? But it would have been a tiring climb. Uh, the disciples probably fatigued by the time they get up there. Uh, Luke tells us that they went up there to pray. And in what would become typical of the disciples, they grew tired and fell asleep. And while Jesus was praying, uh, I mean, while Jesus is praying here, he's transfigured, he's transformed. Here was the unveiling the revelation of God's of Jesus' glory that was present within him because he was divine. Uh, and yet this is glory that was hidden because of his humanity and his redemptive mission. One of the disciples must have awakened and elbowed the others because they're now seeing something they hadn't seen in all of their time with Jesus. That is the uncovering, the unveiling of his divine glory. Could you just imagine if you had been one of the three seeing this? And if that wasn't enough to wonder if they're hallucinating, they see two guys with Jesus. One is the prophet Elijah, the other is Moses. Now, how they recognize them and knew who they were, we don't know. The text doesn't say. But those two men are talking with Jesus. And you wonder, well, why Moses? Why Elijah? Well, they are the two greatest prophets in all of Israel. Um, perhaps it is because they represented the full testimony of prophecy about the Messiah, the law, and the prophets, Moses and Elijah. Uh, another suggestion is that works of miracles accompanied their ministries as they did Jesus' ministry. Uh, one of the great early 20th century New Testament scholars, H.C.G. Moole, suggests another reason. Here's what he wrote. The fact that both figures were described as having ended their lives on earth in a mysterious way, adds to the appropriateness of their mysterious reappearance in this preview of the glorious climax of Jesus' ministry. Luke tells us what subject matter they were discussing. He writes in chapter 9, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Can you imagine? So here's Moses and Elijah discussing with Jesus what lies ahead in the days ahead. Um, what an amazing thing that must have been. Well, Peter takes center stage again. Back in chapter 9 and verse 5, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I love this note. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Peter is petrified with fear. And so he just blurts out to him what seems like a great idea. Lord, it's good to be here. I have a great idea. Why don't we build a tabernacle, a tent, for all three of you guys? I can just, I can just see Jesus shaking his head. But Peter, what's happening to Peter? He is overwhelmed with the glory of God. It strikes fear in his heart. And all he can think of is, let's build some tents. Now, to give him credit, this, is, this would be a way to honor these three great people. But whether he realized what he was saying or not, Peter has missed the point. It goes back to the experience only days before when he thought he knew best uh, about Jesus' future. 
Do you remember the instance Jesus is talking very plainly about the necessity of his death and his suffering? Uh, the path to glory went through the cross. But Peter pulls Jesus aside and he rebukes him. And he says, Lord, this shouldn't happen to you. In fact, if I have anything to say about it or to do about it, it's not going to happen to you. And what did Jesus tell Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Whoa. Here again, Jesus is talking about his suffering and death. But Peter just can't comprehend the need, the necessity of that happening. One of the leaders of the Christian church in the 4th century, Christostom, says this, Peter wanted to settle down in the security of this temporary bliss and also thus prevent the going down to Jerusalem to the cross. And all of a sudden, a cloud envelops them on the mountain. And God speaks from heaven. Look at verse 7. A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus alone. This is one of three times that the Gospels record God speaking audibly from heaven. The first time is at the beginning of his ministry, his baptism. The second is here at the beginning of the final stages of his ministry. And then at the end here, at the close of his ministry in Jerusalem, God will once again speak from heaven. And here's the message. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus is unique. Listen to him. Have you got the message yet? There's no one like him. King of kings. Lord of lords, the radiance of the unspeakable, unapproachable glory. He is here. And don't miss this. God spoke and Jesus was all alone. The centrality and the supremacy of Christ. Now, Peter's going to get it later on. You know, he's missing the suffering of Jesus here uh, being compatible with glory. David Garland writes, the text invites us to reflect how weakness and humiliation go with power and glory. At this point, he doesn't get it, but he is going to get it later, I'm happy to tell you. In fact, he wrote about this experience in his second letter in the New Testament. Look at this. He writes, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter is thinking back, and it's like, aha, now I understand. Now I get it. Go back to Mark 9, verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. 
And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And then actually, Jesus again gives orders for silence. I think it's probably, once again, in order that this knowledge not obscure or detract from his coming mission. Second, they wouldn't be able to understand anyway. They wouldn't understand until after Jesus' death and resurrection. And then all the pieces begin to fall into place. Then they can put it all into perspective, into context. You know, they still don't understand this resurrection thing. But it'll come. And I I think as a result of that, they're afraid to ask anything else of Jesus. What does this all mean for us? What, what implications, what, what applications can we take away from this text this morning? Well, in the Old Testament age, God dwelt in all of his glory in the tabernacle and later in the temple. In the New Testament age, God still dwells in temples. Um, the Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 3. Do you not know that you are God's temple? and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Three chapters later, Paul is speaking about the sanctity of our bodies and and, and how we're to understand the seriousness of sexual involvement with anyone who is not our spouse. And he says that when we do so, we sin against our own bodies. Now, Here's the reason why that's so in 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. In some mysteriously divine way, God's glory in the person of the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in the hearts of those who trust in Christ. We become the dwelling place of the glorious. I know. It's far above our pay grade to understand that, isn't it? Can you even consider the concept that God invades our lives? He lives within us in the Holy Spirit. And what follows then is the process of transformation. And so Paul writes in Romans 12 too, Do not be conformed to this world, But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There's our word, metamorphomai. We are transformed, the same word used to describe what happened to Jesus on the mountain. Because on the mountain, the glory that was within was radiated without. And that's precisely what the scriptures say God wants to do in your life that the glory that's within you in the person of the Holy Spirit needs to get out, needs to be manifested, revealed, unveiled on the outside. So we have to ask ourselves, is the radiant glory in your life evident to others? Well, how does the process work? Well, Paul speaks of God's work within us and our part in the process when he writes in 2 Corinthians 3, and we all with unveiled face, beholding of the glory of the Lord, are being, here's our word, are being transformed, present tense, ongoing, 
into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. How do we behold his glory? Where do we see his glory? Right here. In the pages of Scripture, where the eternal, glorious Christ is revealed to us. You will not find him apart from these pages. Oh, you can see the work of God in creation, but you've got to see it in the pages that God has given to us, this revelation that's there. That's why Paul says transformation occurs through the renewing of your mind. Your mind has to sift and filter and look at these things. And how is the glory manifested? Where does it show up? What does it look like? W.E. Vine, in his Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words, writes about this transformation. The obligation being to undergo a complete change which under the power of God will find expression in character and conduct. God's glory is revealed, it's expressed in our lives, through our lives, by the Holy Spirit, by our conduct and our character. Those two things. Character, conduct, character, conduct. Does your life look more and more like Jesus' life? Do you love the way he loved, unconditionally? Are you patient with others as he was patient? Do you value the things that he values? Someone asked Jesus, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And there's a second like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. How can you tell if your life is being transformed? If God is working and changing your life from within, well, how are you doing with those two things? Loving God, loving others. When we are increasingly doing those things, then God's glory residing within us is bubbling out. It's coming out in our character and in our conduct. Just some final thoughts. What's the big deal about glory? Paul tells us it's a very, very big thing. In fact, look what he writes to the Thessalonian Christians. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you from the beginning to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel. Now get this so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is your destiny. Glory. Paul goes on to say, here are the implications, here are the ramifications of that. So he writes, So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm, hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, whether by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. What's his point? Your life ought to be different. It must be different. Over time, it takes place over time, but you're a child of destiny. Your life is shaped by the glory of God and the glory of Christ within you. And somebody wants to say is, listen, the Holy Spirit is in you, this glory of God within you, now live like it. Set your will to his. 
your life to his, uh, your way to his. And as you do that, then this God of glory begins to transform us. Attitudes change. Actions change. That's your destiny. That's his promise. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you that you have made such a commitment to us when we put our trust in you and believe in Jesus as the only way to salvation. And you put your Holy Spirit who comes within us to live within us, uh, securing our salvation, sealing us to the day of redemption, given to us as a down payment, a pledge of the inheritance that's set aside for us. God, now as we understand that more and more, would you live your life through us? Would you change the way we think about things? Would you change the way that we act, the way we live, such that that glory that lives within us would more and more be revealed to those outside? We thank you that it's all through your Holy Spirit who you've given us. We thank you that it's all through Jesus who gave his life for us. It's all because you, you, Father, because you love us so much. May this indeed be our destiny, and might it increasingly show up every day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.